Uh, we are starting today a new series on the women of the Old Testament, and each week after our reading of the text, we will um, be singing a response, which is in the bulletin, and so after the, uh, after the text is read, we will go straight into that response. Listen now for God's Word to us today in 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodging, and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word for us this day, and we ask your blessing upon it and upon us. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, we are starting a new series for the month of July. 
Over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at some Old Testament women, women whose stories appear in the Old Testament and whose stories reveal to us much about the human story, but also much about who God is. The gift that these women will give each of us is a bit of a revelation into God's character and a bit of God's identity. But even more so, and perhaps even more than the more commonly told stories from the Old Testament involving men, even more so, these texts speak into our lives about things that matter for us and matter for our world. They show us something of the human experience. And through the lens of these women, we begin to ask ourselves the question about what this text might mean for us and, again, also for our world, for our church, and for our collective and individual relationships with God. For the three of us, Pastor Leah and Mike and me, choosing these five texts was a challenge for a few reasons. First of all, there are a lot of women in the Old Testament. In fact, this could be a regular sermon series with so many to choose from. But in full disclosure, it was also a challenge because when choosing texts involving women in the Old Testament, I often feel as though I'm playing the role of a censor. You see, many of the women of the Old Testament are treated very inhumanely. There are many stories that probably should be told, that that absolutely should be told, and a few where I almost selected them for this series, but then realized that the content just wouldn't work or be appropriate, especially in a multi-generational context. And I want to acknowledge this, because these women, like women you and I may know who have suffered abuse, shouldn't be edited out or ignored. We do need to tell their stories and give voice to their experiences. But context, the context in which we are preaching, the context in which we are studying matters. And the right time and the right place matter for us. So the five lessons we'll use over the next several weeks, while rich with struggle and drama, will not include some of the most powerful and challenging texts from the Old Testament involving women. I also want to name another uncomfortable reality. The women in the Old Testament and women generally in Scripture have not been given the proper attention in Christian history. In fact, many of the heinous stories I alluded to earlier have been dismissed by theologians. Or the actions of terrible men have been justified by preachers, by commentators, and by theologians throughout history, including in our contemporary time. And so that is part of why it is important for us to look at these texts today, again and anew. And so this week we begin our series with the widow of Zarephath. Like many women of the Old Testament, we know this woman by descriptors, by her status and her location. We never know her name, and she only appears in this very short section of 1 Kings. But even from that description, we know something about this woman. We know that she is a widow, and we learn very quickly that she has a son, 
and that she's a single woman raising a child. While this is difficult in any time and context, it would particularly have been difficult in the ancient Near East where a man was seen as the protector and the provider. Interestingly though, her town, Zarephath, is important here as well because this is a foreign place. She's not in Israel. This matters because in Israel, the Jews are commanded by God to care for those who can't care for themselves but not in Zarephath. When we meet this woman, she's in a pretty difficult position. She's a widow raising a child in a land where there's no help for her. And she's in a particularly bad spot because there's a drought in the land. There is another key character in this text, the prophet Elijah. One of Elijah's most important roles as a prophet was to stand in the face of the king, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and to basically try and get them to obey God. Now, when we think of prophets, we often think of people who uh, tell things that will happen, who tell the future. But really, when we look a little closer at what prophets do, prophets most of the time in the Bible are people who are trying to point others back to God to point people to God, to to repent, to return, to come back in line with where they should be. They're identifying societal wrongs or other things that need to be remedied, and then they're trying to get the people who have the ability to make it right to make it right. And Elijah tells Ahab that unless and until Ahab obeys God, there's going to be a drought across the land. And obviously, the drought will make life difficult for everyone. Everyone, but especially the ones who are, are, who are already struggling. The ones with minimal resources. It always seems to be that right when there is scarcity, it is those with the least that, of course, have it most difficult. And this is where our story begins. God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath. And God tells him that he will find a woman there who will feed him. He tells Elijah that the woman knows it. Did you catch that in the text? I mentioned at 8 o'clock that I didn't really notice that in the text till recently. That he tells Elijah, go see this woman. She knows you're coming. But when we get to the part of the, of the text where Elijah shows up, it doesn't seem that she's gotten that message. Elijah shows up and asks her for food, and she's a little surprised. When we know someone's coming for food, we prepare it, right? We prepare the food. She's surprised, not just because it was bold of this man to come ask her for food, but also she's surprised because she doesn't have anything. She doesn't have any food to give, nothing to spare, and quite dramatically she says she's down to the last of her resources. Her shelves are empty, her jars are empty. And it's quite dramatic. She says, I'm going to go home and make one last meal so that my son and I can eat it and then die. Whoa. She doesn't just say no. She says, yeah, no. You'd think Elijah would catch a clue. It's not that she doesn't want to be hospitable. She's being honest. She's confessing that she simply doesn't have anything to give. You'd think that Elijah would give her a break and move on. Maybe he got the wrong woman. But he doesn't. 
Instead, he looks at her and he says, essentially, okay, that's great, but first, make me a cake. And then make a cake for your son and for you. And then he says my favorite words in all of scripture. Don't be afraid. Huh. Don't be afraid? I'm at the end of my rope. I'm collecting sticks to literally create a fire to prepare my last meal for me and my son. And you say, don't be afraid. Whenever we come across those words in scripture, whenever we come across that phrase, I always want to come back and remind us that usually when someone tells you not to be afraid, you have a very good reason to be afraid. The question is, what do we do with the fear? Does the fear guide our actions? Because when fear guides us, and of course when we're faced with scarcity like this woman, our natural inclination is going to be to let that fear guide us. Our inclination is going to be to protect or even hoard. And we see this all the time, right? We definitely saw fear guiding the actions of people shopping during the pandemic. I feel like enough time has passed between now and then that it's almost comical about the toilet paper and the sanitizer hoarding. Do you remember that? I'm embarrassed to say that I still have toilet paper from my panicked buying. I brought it here when I moved. And so the question isn't whether we'll have fear. The question is what we do with it. How do we live and interact when we're fearful, justifiably or unjustifiably so? When fear guides our actions, when unexamined fear guides our actions, the outcomes can be tragic. Or as the philosopher Yoda puts it, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And so, yes, the widow is afraid. But Elijah promises her that the God of Israel will ensure that she does not run out of flour and oil. Okay, Elijah. It sounds great, right? It sounds ideal. But I have to wonder what she was thinking when she hears this stranger tell her this. Why would she listen to this man? It sounds too good to be true. But at the same time, she doesn't have much to lose. And so maybe this moment, this interaction gave her some hope or a moment of resignation of, well, why not? Or maybe she felt badly for Elijah, this man out in the desert during a drought who's asking for help. What could, what could go wrong with saying, okay, I'll help to make him feel better? We don't know what motivated her. But what we know is that in the midst of her uncertainty, in the midst of her uncertainty, she took a chance. She trusted Elijah and she shared what she had. She was generous, she was hospitable, even in the midst of her own scarcity, her own fear. 
and the oil and the flour didn't run out. She trusted. She took the risk. She chose trust in the midst of her fear. And the oil and the flour didn't run out. In the midst of uncertainty, she didn't hold on to the scarcity. And yes, the oil and the flour didn't run out. So often our lives are complicated and driven by fear. And as I've said before, I, I don't propose that we can fully escape our fears. I want to be very clear about that. But sometimes, in the midst of fear, we can look for ways that we can find agency over some aspect of our lives, that we can exercise some control, where we can look at God in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of what feels like scarcity, in the midst of our fear, and we can choose to trust and to take a chance, like this widow of Zarephath. It is interesting to me, though, that the widow of Zarephath trusts this foreign man she doesn't know, and that she trusts this God she doesn't know or really have any reason to know. She sees something, though, that draws her in and enables her to trust them even without knowing them. Uncertainty is not the enemy of this woman, but rather, it's into the uncertainty that she steps And it's in her uncertainty that she models for us a way of living faithfully that doesn't seek to have all the answers. Or that doesn't pretend that we can eliminate fear. We had a sage and friends trip to the Phoenix Art Museum this week. And as I was leaving, a woman was walking toward me in a t-shirt that said, in large writing, faith over fear. And I wanted to stop the woman and have a conversation with her about what I saw as questionable theology. But it was very hot outside, and I resisted the temptation and walked to my car. But it's comfortable in here, so I can say it. Faith doesn't erase our fear. I think we're told that a lot. That if we just have enough faith, we won't be afraid. If we have enough faith, we won't let our fear be in control. That faith and fear don't go together because they're opposites, like faith and perhaps even certainty. But we wouldn't call it faith if it was always so certain, would we? What is faith? Faith is us taking that chance that that there is faith in the midst of our fear, that there is faith alongside our fear, that faith is powerful enough and strong enough to sit with our fear, and that hopefully, hopefully our fear will fade. But friends, if we as a church say that there is no room for fear and there is no room for uncertainty, we've got a problem Because throughout scripture, almost everyone that God uses is in the midst of uncertainty. And isn't that good news? Because aren't we? Aren't our lives filled with uncertainty? Aren't our lives filled with things that are out of our control sometimes? 
people who are out of our control. And God uses the experience of our uncertainty, God uses the experience of our fear to reveal to us more of who God is. But why does this woman do what she does? There's something unspoken in this text. Theologian and author Eric Elnes describes in his book, Gifts of the Dark Wood, this sense of intuition that God uses in us. The gut feeling that's somewhere between experience and knowledge, but something more. It's something that is hard to describe. This woman has no identified reason to trust God, but yet something in her gut her intuition tells her to do so. And again, God then uses her oil and her flower to show something of God's goodness and faithfulness to her. And so she lives happily ever after, right? I almost ended at that moment when it says that the jug never ran out, the shelves never ran empty, and it's all happily ever after. But that's not what happens. No, this strong woman, this woman who learns who God is in the midst of her fear and uncertainty, a woman who for whatever reason trusted her gut and was shown the miraculous goodness of God, then has the unthinkable happen as her son dies anyway. And worse than that, her son dies when she doesn't die. It would have been easier for her had they both died. And yet here she is. She had accepted the inevitability of death for her son and for her, but then they're delivered from scarcity, from that risk, from that fear, and yet still he dies. And in that moment we receive another gift from this woman. When she loses her son, she cries out, she cries out a bitter and honest prayer. God, what do you have against me? Why would you do this to me? Why would you deliver us from certain death only to bring us death? She models honesty. Honesty before God in the face of terrible things. And honesty for us in the face of the terrible things we may encounter. And she shows us that God can handle it. God can handle it. God is bigger even than the anger that we may have or the fears that we may have or the, the unsettledness that we may have. God is bigger than it. God can handle our authenticity. Not only can God handle it, God wants it. God desires it. God knows it, and God loves even that part of our lives. God can handle our questions, our doubts, our pain. And so, friends, we too, as a church, should be a place where people can bring all of who they are. A place where people can bring their questions about God, their fears about God, their, their concerns, their doubts, their experiences of pain, their experiences of loss. The church isn't a place where you have to come and have it all together when you walk in the door, but rather a place where you bring your whole mess with you. 
And maybe we'll sit next to you on the pew with your mess. We'll make room. And we won't try to fix it. And we won't tell you it'll all go away and be better. We'll sit with you. And we'll cry out like Elijah did and say, why? If we're not a place where people can ask those questions, they'll go somewhere else. It may not be church, it might be somewhere else. But we are fully convicted that it is God who desires our questions just as much as God desires our worship and our faithfulness. Something in this woman's gut compelled her to trust Elijah. And then something compels her. After, after she has seen and experienced the abundance of God, something then compels her, knowing how strong God was, how strong God can be, something compels her to question God in her emptiness. And you see, God uses Elijah. God uses this woman. God uses her son. And God breathes life into the boy, but God seems to be doing so much more than that. And maybe that's what faith is. Holding our empty jar holding our present circumstances, holding even our uncertainty, uncertainty that we try to chase away, holding our empty jar and following a God we may not fully understand, and we may not feel like we even know, holding our empty jar and trusting in the possibility, the possibility and the promise of abundance. Friends, may we follow in this woman's footsteps. Footsteps that lead us to the God who delivers, the God who loves us, the God who provides, the God who is bigger than our empty jars and our longing hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.